Thank you for joining us on the Restoration Church Podcast. Today's episode is part two of our Mover series, where we are asking the question, does the size of our faith really matter? We hope you enjoy. Awesome. It's great to see all you guys here. Uh, What an amazing time reflecting on the great love of Jesus and how it sets us free from fear and uh, empowers us to see mountains moved and the impossible accomplished. Thought a lot about what it means to accomplish the impossible recently. Uh, whenever I think of impossible, for some reason the first comes to my thing that comes to my mind is Yogi Berra. Uh, what a great statesman, right? And how often he say things that really truly were impossible. Everybody probably has their favorite Yogi Berra quote, right? Everybody have their favorite Yogi Berra quote. Well, if you don't, here's mine. I'll go and share it with you. And uh, uh, then then I'd love to hear from you, you later on what yours was as well. But my favorite one is always seen a murder. It's, it's one my dad used to always quote is that restaurant across town is so busy no, nobody ever wants to eat there anymore. Uh, that's actually my favorite. Let that one sink in for a second. Uh, okay, no, I don't think anybody. I'll try again. Um, so, so thank you. At least got got Frank up here. We got going. So there's things that are impossible, right? That's impossible. A restaurant can't be so busy that nobody wants to eat there. See? Okay, I'll keep I'll keep moving. It made me think a lot about what what. Uh, see, that's, I, I just can't pull that off. See, I can't pull that off. But, uh, but uh, the, uh, there are lots of things that are impossible. So I reflected on the like Yogi Berra. What are some of the things that are impossible this week? Some of the things impossible I, I thought of. One was diet bacon. That's definitely. <laughs> now it's going a little better. Thank you. That's definitely. That's definitely. Um, definitely impossible. Or right, another one that came to mind was cat, man's best friend. I thought that one was definitely, uh, definitely an impossibility. Uh, that we face there. So there's lots of things that we uh, end up in, in impossible. Actually, my favorite one that just popped in my head was um, a modern era basketball championship for NC State. Impossible. Just, that was for you, Mike. Just right there. <laughs> anyway, all right, so we'll move on. So there's lots of things that are impossible that we bring in the room, right? Lots of ideas. Uh, but if you're like me, you walk in here and you may have your own list of impossible things that you would love to see change. You'd love to see God actually enter in. And, and do what he does and do the impo- take the impossible and make it possible, make it happen, make it real. So what did you walk in here with today? That's the question I want you to begin to reflect on. Uh, maybe you walked in here today with a habit. Uh, maybe it's anger. You walk in here today and you, you blew up at your wife before you walked out the door. Or you blew up at your kids yesterday because they didn't uh, sweep up the floor just exactly right. Um, and, and you're so frustrated that that is how you've reacted again. You've been to counseling, you've read the books, you've heard the sermons, you've given, somebody sent you a podcast, and you're at this stage in your life, you're like, I know that's got to change, I, I know it's got to be different, but I just don't know how to change it, it seems impossible. Or maybe you walk in here and you've got a relationship that's really struggling, a, a friend, a co-worker, your spouse, and you look at the relationship you have with that person, you go, it just seems like an impossible relationship to be at peace, to have joy, to be whole, and you're hungry, you're desperate for it to be whole. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a child. The impossible. As we think about that and reflect on it, what I'd like for you to do is begin to assess what's impossible that you brought in the door this morning. How do we know what's impossible in our lives? Well, we start saying things like, uh, well, well, that's just who I am. Now, we, we've started to put something in the category of impossible when we say things about it like, that's just who I am. Well, yeah, I gossip a lot. <laughs> that's just who I am. My mom gossiped. My, my mom's mom gossiped. That's just who I am. Or, or that's just never going to change. That, it's just never going to change. I, I've been talking to him for years about that problem. And uh, I've, I've prayed about it. I've beat my head against the wall. It's just never going to change. Or maybe, maybe the one that's pretty common, pretty broad. 
uh, to bracket all the impossible. It's just going to take a miracle. Man, if that's going to happen, it's just going to take a miracle. If that person's going to discover the grace and love of Jesus in their life, it's just going to take a miracle. Those are the kind of things we start saying when we are in the category of the impossible. I want you to write down, or if you don't have a piece of paper or don't have an iPhone or something to write it down, I want you to write down the, the number one big impossible thing you brought in the room today. The thing that you want to see God work in so badly but seems impossible. Not unlikely, but seems impossible. And I want you to write that down. At least take a mental note of it. If not, put it on a piece of paper or jot it down on your iPhone. So I'll give you a second to reflect on that. And as you, as you reflect on that, keep those in mind. Things you might have said, well, that's just who I am. It's just what I do. I'm just a guy. Guys look at pornography. That's what they do. I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm, just a, I'm, I'm just a worrier. Everybody in my family worries. I write that down. And then what I want you to do after you've written that down, you've taken a second to do so, uh, I want you to write down on a scale of 1 to 10. Now, this is going to take a little bit of thinking. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the greatest and 1 being the least, how much faith do you think it would require of you to see that impossible thing happen? It's a very subjective thing, I know, but, but humor me for a second. So, again, write down the thing that is impossible that you brought in this morning, that you really desperate that God would move in, but seems very, very unlikely that it would do so. And then write down on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the greatest, 1 being the least or the weakest. Write down the number that you think represents the amount of faith you will need for God to do that impossible thing. So we're going to look in, as you continue to write that down, we're going to look in uh, Matthew today. We're going to continue a series we're in called Mover where we're looking to discover what does it look like to be the kind of people in our lives that see God move mountains, that see God, that sees God do the impossible in our lives. Um, as we start that, we're going to look at first in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20 and 21, because I want to set up kind of where we're going or the, the, the vision of God's plan in our life. It starts out this is kind of the, the summary of what Matthew's been doing. So Matthew, throughout the entire book that he's been writing, has been creating a message about faith. It's not his only message, or maybe not be his main message, but it's part of, part of his, his idea that he wants to get across to everybody when they're reading the book. I'll give, you, I'll give you a little Bible study thought here as well. As you're studying the Bible, don't just pay attention to the events and think about what they were looking, what they looked like when they happened. Pay attention to how the author used these events and commented on these events and ordered these events to teach you his message, because it's the message of the biblical author that we're always trying to uncover when we're reading and studying the Bible. So with that in mind, what we're, where we're going to end up is in Matthew 17. We're going to look at a couple other passages as well. And we're getting to the end of Matthew's journey of describing what great faith would look like. He had just said, we're not going to look at this one, but he's just said in a few chapters earlier, um, he had been in his hometown and he'd been preaching, and he'd been trying to be, be received in his hometown as a prophet. And, he, and it literally says at the end of that story that, uh, he had, uh, that he didn't do many great works there because of their unbelief. So we start to see this idea developing that the faith that a person would have, the faith that a person would lack, actually impacts whether Jesus works in their life or not. And that becomes the distinguishing factor between Jesus showing up and doing his great work and overcoming the impossible or not, or the unbelief. There leads to Jesus not doing his great work. So uh, chapter 17, verse 20 is where we're going to be. We're kind of picking up in the middle of a story. Jesus has just come down off of a mountain where he showed his glory to, to a few of his very close apostles. And he gets down and the, uh, the rest of the disciples, the rest of the apostles have been trying to heal a guy, trying to cast out a demon. And uh, they couldn't do it. And they're like, why in the world would I do this, God? Why, what, what's wrong with us? There's something broken in us. 
And Jesus is going to start to play around with this idea and teach us something very important about faith. And the kind of faith that moves mountains. The kind of faith that sees the impossible accomplished through the miraculous work of Jesus Christ. He says this in verse 20. Because of your little faith. Literally, that's one word. It's like, like weak faith, puny faith. One word in the Greek. That's why. That's why you couldn't do this. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. I don't know about you, but when I read that, immediately mama goes, what? You said, this is what I guess. If I fall over, is that okay? Because I'll probably fall over a couple of times with this video. Somebody just pick me up. Um, pick me up and set me back on the stool, kind of like Humpty Dumpty. Um, but so, so get this. You're, you're, I'm reading this passage of Scripture. It says, the reason you couldn't accomplish the impossible is because you had small faith. And then what does he immediately say after that? How big does your faith need to be? The size of mustard seeds. I don't know if you guys have mustard seeds or not, but mustard seeds are basically the size of a sesame seed burger on a hamburger bun. Right? I mean, there's just a little bit bigger than that. Not much bigger. Just a, a side note, when I was a kid, I thought the sesame seed on a hamburger bun would actually grow hamburgers. You put it in the ground. I would actually go out and get sesame seeds, put them in the dirt, and I'd cover it up and I'd plant them, and I'd wait for a hamburger to be hamburger to be grown and I thought it'd be really cool because then if you grew the hamburger off the seed it'd probably be a vegetable right so then you could eat like vegetables hamburgers so anyway but that's how big of a, a seed a mustard seed is it's the size of a sesame seed on the bun so Jesus says and it's one of those I think Jesus says to catch our attention okay so you don't you, you want to know why your faith didn't accomplish the impossible all right here it is your faith is really small but if you want to accomplish the the, the, the impossible in your faith then you need to have faith as big as, wait for it, wait for it, a mustard seed, a sesame seed. What in the world is going on here? Because once you have faith as big as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. So what Matthew does in teaching us this idea and helping us unwrap it is begin to, begin to help us to pay attention to the idea that the size of our faith doesn't matter. Has no effect on the outcome in our life of Jesus' work and intervention. He digs in a little bit deeper as if we skip ahead a little bit. He picks up these ideas again. That's what Matthew does. He'll, he, he's almost like a musician, a musician who might play one note, and he plays the note, the, uh, the note again, and then he adds another note to it, and then before long he's playing a chord with the same notes, and before long he's playing a, I don't know much about music, he's playing like a whole song built off of those three, two or three notes. That's what Matthew does. And we're getting to chapter 21, we're getting to the space where he is really building into teaching us what it means to have the kind of faith that accomplishes the impossible. This is chapter 21, verse 20. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, he repeats his idea again, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This little phrase, do not doubt, is kind of interesting. I'm used to this. Did y'all see that? The screen's usually, it used to be over there, so I went that way. It's over here. Um, so the screen is do not doubt. It says do not doubt, it's underlined. So, this is going to be an interesting little, little take I want you to think about on this. Uh, the, the word that's translated do not doubt in this translation of the ESV version, most of the time is translated do not evaluate or do not judge or do not measure. And what I believe Jesus is saying, I think it's actually a better, better translation, something along the lines of truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not measure it, do not evaluate it, do not get concerned with how big it is, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea, it will happen. So that's the difference that we start to see in faith that moves the mountain and faith that doesn't. Faith accomplishes the impossible and faith that doesn't accomplish the impossible. It's whether or not we begin to evaluate and measure our faith. We could say it this way. 
Mountain movers never measure their faith. A mountain moving faith never measures itself. It never concerns itself with how strong it is or how certain it is or how powerful it is or how good it is. Mountain movers actually don't think a lot about how strong their faith is. Think about it this way. As we begin to reflect and, and think about how strong our faith is, we actually take our faith out of, our, out of God and start putting it on ourselves. We could, we could even we could reflect on it differently. As we think about the importance of our faith and start to evaluate it and measure it, we're actually revealing that our faith is not in God, it's in faith. You know, you remember, you remember like, you, you might have been accused, like I, I was actually accused of this growing up, that I wasn't in love with a person. I was in love with the idea of being in love with a person. Anybody else ever, ever be, uh, was, I was accused of that in high school a couple times. And same way in our spiritual lives, sometimes we don't have faith in Christ. We don't have faith in Jesus or the gospel. We have faith in faith. And that becomes, that becomes revealed to us as we begin to measure or test our faith and go, is it strong enough? Did I feel that enough right now? Am I, am I certain in my emotions right now? Do I, do I have this confidence and this lack of doubt and this absolute certainty? Or am I starting to measure and evaluate my faith? I'm starting to test it. When we do that, we're revealing that our faith is not in God, but our faith is in our faith. And when your faith is in faith, by, by definition, it can't also be in God or in Jesus. Uh, as we were thinking about this, I was reflecting on this week. I actually talked to, talked to my daughter about it, Emma. She's downstairs. We were talking about it a lot. And uh, she said, it reminds me of an iPhone battery. I said, I said, what do you mean by that? She said, well, you're kind of basically saying that, that faith, the more you focus on it, the weaker it gets. Yeah, that's, that's kind of true. That's good. I'm going to write that down. The fo more you focus on the weaker it is, it's kind of like your iPhone battery. If you check your iPhone battery, every single time you check it, it actually goes down and it gets weaker. Did you know that? A little iPhone lesson for you from an Apple guy. <laughs> the same way it is with our faith. The more we check it, the more we assess it, the more we try to wonder, is it right? Is it strong? Is it, is it effective? The more we check it, the more we test it, the more we evaluate it, the more we're actually decreasing it. Because the stronger faith is the faith that doesn't focus on faith, that doesn't measure faith, but focuses not on self, but on the Savior. Not focuses not on the strength of our heart, but the strength of his heart. That's the kind of faith that moves mountains. So I'm going to look at another passage. A story that's going to help us understand where that comes from. How can we begin to have that kind of faith in our life? It's in chapter 15, verse 21. And this is the last passage I'll have you turn to or look at. And it's a story where Jesus actually um, addresses what great faith is. What strong, powerful faith is. He's already started to teach and unwrap this idea throughout the, throughout the book that faith that's strong and mountain-moving faith is not faith that's obsessed and concerned with its own strength and measuring itself and evaluating itself, but faith that's focused on the greatness of the Savior. And now he's going to tell us a story. It's a story that actually happened previ more previously uh, to the text. He's going to tell us a story that helps us unwrap what this looks like in real life. And where does this come from? Uh, verse 21 says this. It says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. So here's the picture that we're at. Jesus has withdrawn. He's actually looking for a retreat. A little bit of rest and respite. Uh, Mark tells us that he's actually in somebody's house right now. Um, he is trying to get away. He's trying to catch a nap. I mean, that's the picture I have of Jesus. I have Jesus, you know, kind of in the, in the back room, recline. He's trying to take a nap. Uh, maybe the, maybe an apostle's laying like in the corner trying to take a nap with, over in the one corner, and somebody else is over in the other corner trying to take a nap. And they're tired. They're worn out. They've just gotten out of a big debate and fuss with, uh, with the Pharisees, and that's no fun. Anybody who's ever been in a deacon's meeting at a church knows how much fun that is. Um, so, <laughs> so um, 
the uh, they're in the re they're resting. They're taking a nap. They're 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 waiting for just just some time. They just need need a pause. And uh, and so then this lady comes up, and that's where we'll pick up. And behold, a Canaanite woman. Canaanite just refers to the fact she's not a Jewish person. She's a she's a non non Jewish person. She's a Gentile. So she's not somebody that would normally be around in these scenarios, and not normally somebody that would be um, be a part of the community that they were working through. That, that Jesus had spent his time with. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, continually crying. Uh, maybe a better way to translate this word would be pestering. She wouldn't stop crying out. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by demons. Now this is her theologically accurate prayer. Right, here she is, this Canaanite woman. She hasn't studied. Uh, she is not part of the rabbinical community. She's not part of the Jewish community probably. But here is a very theological accurate prayer. She's, she's referring to Jesus as the Lord and as the son of David, which is shorthand for the Messiah. So she has a sense of who he is. Very theological, accurate prayer. Will you have mercy on me? My daughter is possessed by a demon. And how did Jesus respond? He responded the way he responds to me a whole lot. He responded the way he probably responds to you a whole lot. He didn't say a word. You ever had that prayer? A desperate prayer? A hurting prayer? And Jesus answered you not a word. That's how he responded to her at first. Then his disciples came to him, so they're all trying to take a nap too. And she won't leave him alone. She keeps pestering them. So his disciples came to him, came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Now, the, the word for send her away could probably be translated slightly different than this. I'm trying to do this too much. I know I've done it twice today already. But the word for translated send her away probably means heal her. So not just send her away like say no to her and send her away, but it probably means the disciples are saying something along the lines of, would you just please go ahead and heal her? Uh, if you were translating it literally, it would say loose her. And it's the same word that the Bible almost always uses when it uses the idea of healing because it's the idea of loosing someone from their disease or loosing someone from their, from their demonic experience. It's the word that's almost always translated in that way throughout the book of Matthew and the rest of the New Testament. So what the disciples are actually doing is joining the lady in, their, in her prayer a bit. Different motivations, to be quite honest. But they're joining the lady in her prayer. They're saying, please go and heal her. Just get her out of our hair. We're, we were tired of worrying about her. She's annoying us. I, I was having a great dream, and she interrupted me. I'm trying to get back into my great dream. Just, just take care of the business and get out of here. But Jesus still did not comply. He answered, right in the middle here, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He answered a theological prayer with a theological answer. But then the prayer began to change. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord help me. Very similar prayer to what Peter had prayed not too many paragraphs before when he was sinking in the water. And instead of praying a very theological prayer when you're sinking in the water in the middle of the storms, what do you pray? Help me. And that's what the prayer of Peter was. That's what the prayer was. Her prayer went from being a prayer of theology to a prayer of desperation. A prayer of pain. A prayer of frustration. A prayer of honesty and authenticity. Jesus isn't wanting or asking for our theologically accurate prayers. He's asking for our honest, authentic, 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 I can't talk today, authentic prayers. 
from our heart, our hurts, our pains, the real things that we crave and yearn and desire deep from within us. Not the surface stuff, but the real stuff. And it's out of that that real faith begins to, to, to find birth, to find life. So she came and she knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, that's a, that's a compassionate answer. What do, we, what do we do then? What do we do when we don't, when Jesus doesn't answer us, or maybe he answers us with some, some theological principle? Anybody ever helped you that way? Have you ever walked up to somebody and you'd be like, hey man, I got this thing going on, it's really tough, I, I need somebody to talk to, I'm really struggling with this sin or this habit, I just need to talk to you about it, and they give you the theological answer? That's fun, right? You go back to that person all the time. No, you don't. You never go back to that person again. Maybe they ignore you. I mean, this is the experience she was having with Jesus even. But she didn't stop there. She continued to wrestle with God. Reminds me of Jacob. Jacob wrestling with God. She kept walking through and discussing through and, and answering every answer with another answer. How often do we press into God that intensely? That's how she was. Yeah, okay. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And we'll just point out real quickly, this is, this is one of two words that can be used for dogs in the New Testament. One of which is a mangy mutt that would be outside in the streets that would be, you know, half its hair gone and just snarling. And you throw it a stake and it would just, argh, you know, that, that picture of dogs that we have from like the streets in Disney. And then there's another word for dog. It's actually the word here. It's a, more of a pet. So if you have a dog at your house, think of that dog. So this is a nice, cute, cuddly dog. Uh, think of that dog. Um, most of the time in the New Testament and in the entire Bible, when dogs are referred to, it is, the, it is the word that describes the dog of the street. The mangy dog, the mad dog, the angry dog, the slobbery TV dog. This is talking about a house dog. A dog that gets pet, a dog that gets taken care of, a dog that gets loved. There is, according to even the Greek lexicon, you look out, an affection applied between master and owner with this word dog and between... Uh, between master and dog and dog and master with this word that's not in typical, typical words for dog. So what's her response? She said, yes, Lord, even the dogs. You're right. You're right, God. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fell from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So what was so great about her faith? I just want you to pause and think about that for a second. As I've dialogued about this story with other people, I've asked this question a lot, and the answer is the same answer I had as I began to reflect on it. I don't know. What's this got to do with faith? But at least one idea has come up. It'll be interesting to hear you guys' answers again in a minute when we do our discussion time. What do most of us do when we are accused of being unworthy? Defend ourselves. We defend ourselves. Or we believe it. We start to work on our status. We start to explain why our status says that we are worthy. We try to um, explain away the accusation that we don't meet up to the standard. That's how we respond. The response of this lady reveals why she could have such great faith. 
because she knew it wasn't about how great she was. Great faith is the result of knowing we don't have to be great. She was okay being a dog. This isn't what you might hear on Oprah Winfrey, by the way. Or modern political um, conversations. She was okay being a dog. She didn't go, no, 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 Jesus, wait a minute. I need some bread here. Let me tell you why I deserve some bread, all right? I'm a really good person. I'm very talented. Let me, uh, let me tell you about how talented I am. I've got a great voice, or I'm a great seamstress, or I'm a great orator, or let, let me tell you about how important I am in my community. Or she didn't start defending herself from a spiritual perspective. Let me tell you about how good I am. Yeah, I'm not as good as that old preacher down the road, or I'm not as good as that one lady who prays at 4 o'clock in the morning, but I'm pretty good. She said, no, you're, you're right, Jesus. I'm not all that impressive. You see, when we are okay with being unworthy, it allows us to focus on the worthiness of Jesus. Instead of us having to be good and to be strong, we can look to Jesus and he can be good and he can be strong. The more we worry about, the more we assess, the more we evaluate our own contribution to the equation, the more place we have in it, the less glory and freedom Jesus has to work in our lives. I like how um, A.W. Tozer says something similar to this. As he takes this same idea and applies it to faith the same way Matthew does. Faith is not in itself a meritous act. The merit is the one toward whom it is directed. Faith is occupied with its object. When we focus on our worthiness, we are by default shifting our faith from Christ and onto ourselves. What's the word worship mean? It means worth-ship. It means to ascribe the worthiness of God back to him. How, wor how much worth do you have? And when we put ourselves in the position of having to defend our worthiness, we are worshiping ourselves. And by virtue of worshiping ourselves, we have removed worship from God. And when we stop worshiping God, we start giving him the worthiness he deserves. We also begin to pull our faith away from him and put it in ourselves. Because if I've got to be worthy, then I'm the one who provides part of the solution. And by nature, by definition, by default, I am now having faith in me. A faith that moves mountains doesn't measure itself. Think about how this might affect you as you continue to reflect on your work with God. There's a few things that come to mind as we look at the, how this might make the, the difference in the future. The first one that comes to mind is how do we deal with criticism? When somebody criticizes us, how do we deal with it? I think most of the time our approach to dealing with criticism is, well, let me tell you why you're wrong. What if it was, let me tell you why you're right, and you're actually more right than you know, and it's worse than you really think it is? How might this affect us as we look at Something similar to what First Peter says where he says judgment should begin in the house of God, which means judgment should begin with insiders and not outsiders. How would this change the way we look at people outside of our doors, outside of our community? We have a tendency to really quickly call up a list of sins that they're guilty of and blast them for it. 
We keep our list of Christian sins over here in a safe place, and we kind of act like they're not that big a deal. Ironically, every time Jesus brings up faith and, and, and rebukes the disciples for having weak faith, he does so in the context of revealing to, to them that the symptom of not having faith is fear and worry. How often do we explain away fear and worthy, worry as not a big deal sin when Jesus makes it one of the biggest deal sins? And it's the result, a symptom of not having faith. We like to categorize the sins that we don't struggle with as being the really bad ones. Jesus actually categorizes the sins that we struggle with as the really bad ones. That puts us into a position, if, we, if we're following Jesus, we're obeying Jesus, where we realize just how unworthy we are. But there's good news here, right? Because when we're unworthy, we get to have grace. We get to have what we don't deserve. Which is God's riches and God's favor and God's pleasure and God's glory and God's presence. Not based on what we've earned. Not based on what we've procured through the currency of our goodness or the intensity or certainty of our faith. We get to have the grace and mercy of Jesus. We get to have God's pleasure, God's presence and God's favor based on his love and his grace towards his own son. That's how he gets to treat you now. And how might this affect your prayer life? I don't know about you, but I've been guilty of this a lot in my prayer, prayer life, of something along the lines of, all right, I've got to have this thing, so I've got to pray for it. Okay, I've got to pray for it. All right, God, I, uh, I need you to pay this bill off. God, please pay this bill off. Ooh, wait a minute. Do I have enough faith? Let me, let me think about that. Okay, I've got, I've got to have enough faith. All right, so I'm going to try again. God, I believe, I, I really believe you're going to pay off this bill. I get all intense and like red face and like get some sweat beads going because that, that, that means my faith is really strong, right? Say, God, I really believe that you're going to pay off this bill. Like, did I really believe it that time? Maybe, maybe I didn't believe it that time. Let me, let me try it again. Let me try. Okay, okay, God, this time I, I know I do. I'm just going to, I know I'm going to believe it. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to try to believe it. I'm going to work real hard. I'm going to believe it. And then God will do it for me. God, I really, really believe this time. You're going to help me pay that bill. We think that from that emotional exertion, from that, from that energy that we put towards faith to make sure it's certain that we make our faith stronger, Jesus actually says we make it weaker. Stop worrying about your faith. Stop measuring it. Stop evaluating it. Stop checking your battery. And the irony is the less you check your faith, the stronger it gets. Because the more you worry about the faithfulness of God, the less your faith matters. And the more effective your faith actually is. Anybody write it down? <laughs> Stop worrying about your faith. The worry about your faith only God. That's good. I like it. That's the clip notes. I like it. Yeah, this is that. Thank you. That's an advertisement right there. Did you hear that, Michael? Podcast, website, restorationchurch.us. There we go. Yeah, but basically, we'll just say it this way. Basically, how it is this. The less you focus on your faith and the more you focus on the faithfulness of God, the less it matters how strong your faith is. And actually, it becomes strong faith the, more, the less you focus on it. Yeah, that sounds weird. Does that make sense? Yeah. I know it's a mouthful. It's a little bit like Dr. Seuss. God gets bigger. Yeah. Yeah. And at some point, you know, brilliant and you just came up with an amazing analogy that I'm going to use in this moment because you just said it and it was a really good idea. If, if the balloon that's lifting the, the basket is kind of small, it matters how heavy the basket is, right? 
But the bigger the balloon, the hot air balloon gets, the less it matters how heavy the basket is. That was good, Rebecca. You just tricked me. So, a couple quick last application points, and we're going to wrap up just real quick ones. You ever struggle with assurance of your salvation? Am I really a believer? Did I really mean it? What was it like when I prayed that prayer? What was it like when I said that, that thing that the preacher told me to say? Was I, was I intense enough to have enough emotions? I didn't cry. Should I have cried? Just ask you a simple question is, do you believe the gospel today? Do you believe that you can ask God to accept you based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and not based on the works that you do? That's simple. That God will accept you not based on your works but on the basis of the works of Jesus. Maybe you're even curious about what it means to follow Jesus. That's how you start. You don't have to have every explanation in the world. You don't have to have a theology degree. You don't have to know Greek or Hebrew. You don't even have to be that good of a good at doing the Christian thing. Matter of fact, you can really stink at it because here's a secret we all do. But, but is your hope not in the work that you produce, but in the work of Jesus on the cross? It's just that simple. And it's that kind of faith. It's when we stop measuring our faith that it starts to really make a difference. So you wrote down something earlier. You wrote down something that was impossible. And you put a number beside it of how much faith it would require. Kind of a trick question, right? Because your number doesn't matter. It's the faithfulness of God. And it's already added 10. Maybe, maybe add infinity. That impossible thing can happen in your life because of the faithfulness of God. Let's close it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church or to hear other messages in this series, please visit us at www.restorationchurch.us or follow us on Facebook at RestorationDCH.